And our New Testament lesson is found in Ephesians chapter 3. We are reading today from verses 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. That was weak we got to get on track here, all right? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your word and all that it does reveal to us and gives us life and knowledge of your great saving plans for our world that include us. Thank you for all that you have spoken. And now give us your spirit that we understand. Your servants are here listening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for working with us as we experiment uh, to set up our, our plans for Meredith's maternity leave. We do need to establish those plans, and we've needed to establish those plans for some time. And, uh, and so uh, forgive us as we, uh, as we work through that today and learn to troubleshoot what these Sundays will look like. Um, so it's always a growing experience. As we come to Ephesians 3, we are continuing Paul's very long, overextended sentences about the grace of God. And we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 how that grace is a cosmic thing in which God is working out a plan to unite everything in heaven and on earth, and that there are vertical and horizontal realities to that grace being at work in our world today. And when we arrive in Ephesians 3, there is perhaps nothing more offensive to modern ears than what Paul says here in these 13 verses. And surprisingly, it's not about the dirty trinity of our culture, it's not about money, it's not about sex, and it's not about power. That what is so offensive to us here in Ephesians 3 has to do with necessity, or exclusiveness. In verse 3, Paul says this. He says, You Gentiles have heard how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. 
In other words, he goes on to explain in the next verse that the apostles and the prophets along with him have received something from God by revelation. That God has made plain a mystery, something that was obscure. He has now brought into full light and has commissioned those same apostles and prophets to make it known to the entire world. And Paul is saying that the entire world needs to hear the proclamation of this mystery. And so you may ask, well, what exactly is the problem? Why is that so offensive? In our modern world, in the cultural soup that we inhabit, we don't tend to like absolute statements. We live in a culture where everything is possible, but yet nothing is exactly necessary. And so in the religious world, you can be a Buddhist, or you can be Islamic, you can be a Wiccan, you can be a Christian, or you can be an agnostic. Sure, everything is possible. It's all open. And you should probably have some type of religious statement of belief that is your own personal value. We tend to encourage that even. But the one thing that you are not to do is to take your religious beliefs past that world of values. That it is a personal value to you, but you're not to say that someone else has a need of it. That you can't press your beliefs on someone else. But yet, this is what the Apostle Paul says that the impact of the gospel is. That it is God, the creator of all things, who's now made plain a mystery, and he's making it known through the church to all the world what his great plan for the reunion of all things in heaven and on earth is. We find this mystery spelled out in the book of Ephesians, and it's fairly exciting as he invites you into it in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1. He says that God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then Paul gets very specific in chapter 3 where he labels the mystery once again. In verse 6, he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul here has given the horizontal application of what we just read vertically, that God is now reuniting all things in heaven and on earth, and then that has the horizontal application of the church being one body that doesn't give preference to anyone, no matter class, no matter race, no matter social status, no matter generation, that the church is one body and that we are in Christ and have an equal standing in front of God. And so that is the horizontal bringing together of all things in Christ. And Paul says that's the mystery that he's now come to proclaim. The Old Testament speaks of it, but yet it's obscure. It was not clear exactly how it was going to happen. We saw that even last week from the book of Isaiah. But now it's been made plain that God is making one new man through Christ. This is the mystery that Paul proclaims, and he says it's absolutely necessary. 
And it is when this language of necessity appears that the objection of arrogance is soon to follow. When someone says they have received a revelation from God, in our cultural world, normally our response is to say that's highly arrogant to make such a claim. But this is the Christian faith. We believe that there's a revelation from God. We believe that there is a truth for all the world, that belief in the Christian gospel is not just a personal value that we hold, that it is a public truth. When we announce that Jesus is Lord, we believe that he's the king and ruler over all as he sits at God's right hand. And so one of the most important questions for us to ask and to answer today is what does it look like for us to be witnesses of this gospel in the middle of this cultural environment where everything is possible but nothing is necessary, what does it look like for us to be witnesses of God's mystery? And through the Apostle Paul's example that he lays out for us in verses 1 through, thir- 1 through 13, we find some of the answers as to what it looks like to be stewards of God's mysteries today. And so four things that we'll look at this morning. And the first is this, is that our witness to the mystery of God requires sacrifice. Paul begins with this and he ends the paragraph with this. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then note where he closes in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul mentions being a prisoner. He was literally a prisoner when writing this epistle to the Ephesians. It was most likely a circular letter that he penned to many churches. And it was from his, uh, his captivity that he writes. And Paul was willing to live in captivity for Christ Jesus because he believed that he was also a prisoner of Jesus's, that he had been won in the holy war and that Jesus was the victor who rescued him from the prince of the power of the air that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2 and that he had been united to Christ and now was seated with him and that he was willing to subject himself to all manner of discomforts in order to make Jesus known. And so then he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. And so Paul was willing to make sacrifice in order that the message of Christ may be delivered. And friends, there is a power to that, to those type of actions that equals the proclamation of the message itself. That these two things, the proclamation of the message and the sacrifices that it takes for the messenger to do so, are tied together. And that it gives the message itself a credibility that goes beyond the mere words. And so we don't ever want to say, well, you just need to live a Christian testimony and people will believe your gospel. No, Faith comes through preaching. We do need to share the gospel verbally. And the gospel verbally, when it meets up with a life of self-sacrifice, in order to see others ushered into this kingdom to know the mystery of God's plan, that is the true heart and power of Christian witness. 
And Paul had demonstrated that. And in a world that's not certain about much, in the cultural world that we do live in, where everything's possible and nothing is necessary, how do we make the gospel attractive? You show that the gospel gives a certain kind of life. That the sacrifice we preach about that Jesus accomplished for us is also changing us. That we inhabit that same way of life. And friends, this is the first step that helps make the gospel credible. Over the past 10 years, it's been interesting for me from time to time to meet adults who had converted to faith in Christ. And I've asked them questions because I'm curious, what is it that God did in your life that drew you to faith? And I'm talking about beyond just the theological things that we know God does in the heart. A couple years ago, I sat down with a friend And I asked him his Christian conversion story. And he said, well, Chuck, you know, I just became a Christian fairly recently. It was about four years ago. I said, okay, tell me about that. I'm just curious to know how God was at work in that. And he said, well, my family was in a season of particular need. My wife was Christian. I was not. And some people from the church surrounded us and began to serve us in our need. And it was their testimony, their sacrifice, the way that they cared for my family in that season that so impressed me. He was attending church. He was listening to a very fine preacher. But it was the service of God's people that made it click. And when we talk about people moving from the far outside periphery of faith, into believing and trusting in Jesus and becoming members of the church, this is a consistent story. That is the union of verbal proclamation and the sacrificial witness of God's people caring for others and delivering the message to them. We need to hold these things together in the middle of our own cultural world. And so our witness requires sacrifice. The second piece to our witness is that it also requires revelation. That our witness must be grounded on something solid and sure. We've already noted what Paul says in verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And then in verse 5, he says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so the apostles had, re- had received something from God that they were to make known to the world. This happened at God's initiation. It's important to point out when he says, was made known. I learned from Mrs. Cox, my sixth grade grammar teacher, what the passive voice was. And the passive voice is when the subject is acted on. And it has nothing to do with the action, that something happens to you. And Paul here uses the passive voice to say that God made something known to him. It wasn't because he was worthy. It's not because he asked for it. It's not because he was a holy man who went up on the mountain. God arrested Paul in Acts chapter 9 in his sin and made something known to him, revealed to him this mysterious plan of the ages to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And God did so with the apostles and the prophets. And that's the revelation that we stand on. 
Leslie Newbigin was a British missionary who lived his entire career in India. And while serving in India, he noticed the opposition that existed in the country to the gospel. And he found that there was a certain Hindu parable that was repeated over and over to him as he shared the gospel with Hindu friends and neighbors. The parable goes like this, that there is a king, and for entertainment, the king brings an elephant into his court. And along with the elephant came certain blind men, and the blind men were to put their hands on the elephant and to to then describe what they were experiencing. And so one of the blind men was holding the trunk. One was sitting on top of the elephant and had his hands on the ears. If you've ever touched an elephant, you can start to squirm with this. They're nasty. One had the tail. One had his hands around one of the large feet. And they were all describing while not seeing. And the Hindu parable is used to describe how we relate to God. The parable says this is how it works for humanity. That there is this great unknown thing that we cannot see and we can only roughly describe. And some people call it Christianity. Some people call it Buddhism. Some people call it Islam. We're all pulling at the same reality is the point of the parable. And Leslie Newbegin came to the place where he began to ask the question, though. He says, you say it's arrogant of me to claim that the Christian gospel has unique revelation about God. But in the parable that you tell me, there is one person who sees. The king. The king sees and knows that the blind men around the elephant are describing an elephant. He's the one person with absolute knowledge of the situation. And so even your statement that all religions are pulling at the same reality, that that is also an arrogant statement. That you can't escape this trap. That any time we make a claim to truth, any statement, you're going to be exposed to the charge of arrogance. And it simply is impossible to live in our world and make claims of truth and not run into that problem. Everyone is exposed to it. And for the Christian, our goal is not to be arrogant, but it is to recognize because of our sinful situation, God must reveal himself to us. There's no other way for us to know him. That yes, we can perceive what God has created. And we know generalities about him, the Bible says in Psalm 19 and in Romans 1. That we know the, the greatness of his being and his power in creation. But we can't know him personally. That our sins are too many and too great. But God must accommodate himself. And he must come down to us. And he must speak through the apostles and prophets. And friends, that's what the Christians call the New Testament. This revelation of God's mysterious plan that has been known all along, but has been somewhat oblique, but now has come into the full light of day and is made known. God's great plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth through Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. And so in the midst of our cultural world, we have to stand on a foundation of revelation. 
And we can do so because everybody stands on some kind of foundation. And the Christian can boldly do so as well. The third piece to our witness today is that our witness requires humility. This is one of the great selling points of the Christian faith. You notice this in verse 8. Beginning in 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. And you have to appreciate Paul's self-awareness. He was a persecutor of the church. He had participated in the martyrdom of Stephen. He had hunted down Christians across Judea. He was one who had sought to extinguish this movement that was troubling Israel. He wanted it to be gone. And Paul now can easily confess that. He acknowledges his sins. He acknowledges his faults and failures, and he can do so freely. And some people may say, well, he was just an extroverted type of personality, and he didn't mind owning his stuff. That's not it. Paul can own his stuff. He can even publicly acknowledge that he is the least of all the apostles and unworthy of receiving all of these great gifts and privileges. The reason he can own his stuff is because he knows the unsearchable riches of Christ. Later in verse 12, he says, "...in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him." Paul knew that he had a bold and confident access before God, not because of anything he was or anything he did, but because of the grace of God in Jesus, that that's the one ground of standing he has. And so he can acknowledge his sins. He can name his faults and failures. He can probably even laugh at them because God is the one who overwhelms them. He's not trying to build up a ledger of credibility with God. God has already given him that ledger of credibility through Jesus. When I was living in Washington, one of the great gifts that God sent me was my college roommate. We had not been together for over a decade. We had had tremendous amounts of fun in college living together, and then we'd not seen each other. We were on other sides of the world. I get a cryptic email one day, Chuck, I'm moving back from Thailand to Washington, D.C. Where do you live? I told him, and he rented a house two blocks away from me. It was fantastic. It was a reunion of lives. And so we would work out, go running together. One day, we had finished working out, and we were sitting in his truck outside of my house. We were just talking. While we're sitting there talking, it was a small neighborhood street. I noticed a young 13 to 14-year-old boy charge out of one of the neighborhood houses. It was unusual the speed at which he burst out of the house, and he came running down the street. And this boy, he was, someone, he was something like a boy giant. He was still a boy trapped now in this hulking man's body. He had this look of glee on his face as he sprinted down the road, and he was coming to one of the neighbor's houses. The neighborhood kids played soccer in the front yard there. And they often kicked the soccer ball into a metal fence that was on the other side of the yard. And so the ball was sitting out in the front yard. He leapt up into the grass. And when he leapt up into the grass, he then kicked the soccer ball with all of his might into the metal fence. It hit the metal fence, makes the clanging noise. 
And then he throws his arms up over his head. And you can tell that he's yelling, goal, like you would see in a soccer game. Then he steps in a small hole in the front yard. And I've still never quite seen anything like it. He face planted, no hands to protect him. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) He had no clue we were sitting there watching it all. He bites it so hard that his entire weight comes up on his face and his back was about to bow and you thought he may just flip over. It was such a delicious moment. You're just so thankful God gives you some of these little times in life. He was okay, okay? Um, he, He gets up. We're just doubled over in the car laughing at this point. Um, He gets up. He goes back and looks at the hole. (laughs) You know, he's scratching his head. He walks inside. We thought we would never see him probably again for shame. You know, I mean, this just happened. He comes back out with everybody from the house. And there were about 20 people who lived inside of this house. He comes out with everybody. And he starts reenacting the whole thing. Play by play, you know, from the sprint down the street to the soccer ball, he kicks it again, he shows the hole, and then he, he face plants. And he's, he's just dying laughing about the whole thing. And I'm just sitting there thinking I would never tell anybody about what just happened. I mean, that is the most destroying, destructive thing that could go down in life. And he's just owning it freely in his boy-like way. And friends, it is that same kind of self-ownership that the gospel allows us to have. Not about just the stupid things we do in life, because there's all plenty of those, but about our faults, about our sins, about our failures, because we can own those freely because we do have a mediator who grants us access with confidence through faith in him. And it is that kind of humility that can own our personal sins and failures that the world needs to see. It is a way of embodying your faith, not where you need to vomit all of your stuff all over everyone. It's not really helpful, but where you can clearly show that you're a person who knows what it is to be broken, who knows what it is to fail, to know what it is to sin and not come across as a self-righteous, better than you prude. That's helpful to no one. But God gives us the ability to come across in a humble fashion, like Paul, where he knows that he's the least. He's not deserving. And he comes across with a sense of awe and wonder that God has privileged him to do this. And that's what we have to project in our witness to the world as well. The fourth and final piece of our witness is that this witness requires a community. You'll notice this in verse 10. Paul says, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In our culture, we're fond of having a low view of the church. We think that the most important thing is our personal relationship with God through Christ. That is an important thing. It's a bond that has to be established. But the apostle here makes something of also the corporate bond that we share together. 
and that he says it is in that corporate place that we call the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, what Paul is communicating is that there is something about the church's common life as they live as one new man together in Christ, as a new society without the distinctions that plague humans, and we live in this new way that something is being declared to the world around us. And so along with our verbal proclamation comes the way of life of the church in the gospel. And Paul is saying that the manifold wisdom of God is made known as the church does that. As the church lives in peace through the peace that has been made through Christ. Several years ago, I was talking with someone about their church going habits, and they explained to me, they said, Well, Chuck, I'm a member of the church. I said, Well, which one is that? The church. Oh, you mean God's universal church? Yes, I'm a member of the church. And so sometimes I visit this church and sometimes I visit that church. We'll go here for a few months, then we'll pop in here and be an encouragement, and then we'll pop in over here. And we just travel around because we see ourselves as members of God's one true church. And it wasn't altogether a bad piece of theology to start with. Any professing Christian is a member of God's one true church. And Paul speaks a lot about that universal one church here in the book of Ephesians. This is what we profess in the Apostles' Creed, the holy Catholic apostolic church, the one true church across time, across the nations, all people who profess faith in Jesus. But for Paul in the book of Ephesians, when he talks about that one universal church, he doesn't do so at the exclusion of the humble, ordinary local church. That he sees the local church as an expression of that one true church. That that local church is where those realities of Jews and Gentiles learning how to work together and live together through the gospel, he knows that's where it gets nitty-gritty and has to be worked out. That this is the furnace where it all happens. And so friends, we don't ever underestimate that a community called the local church, is involved in the gospel witness. And that the witness our common life together projects out is extraordinarily important. And that we don't get the privilege of being freelancers, of belonging to the one true church and never having to put down our lives and our sweat and our blood equity into a local body filled with all of its warts and its faults that that's not the way it works in biblical Christianity. That we commit ourselves to a body. That we belong to it. That we invest ourselves in it. And the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the world and to the principalities and the powers as we do so. There is a witness being made, known, is what Paul is saying, as we live together. It's amazing. And so friends, as we proclaim the gospel, as we announce that we can have access with confidence through faith in Christ, and that God opens that door to all who would believe in Jesus and welcome sinners to be reconciled to God, as we proclaim that message in the middle of our own cultural moment, 
It is these things that come along to assist us. It is a community that embodies that faith and becomes a hermeneutic for that faith. It is humility that adorns our faith, that commends it to other people, that they see the freedom with which we now live. It is our submission to a revelation, to God's truth that has been given in a unique way in the history of our world. And it is our sacrifice that these four elements were part of Paul's apostolic ministry. They accompanied his verbal proclamation of the gospel. And they're to accompany ours as well. And it's what gives the gospel its potency and power as God by his spirit works around us. And so let's go in those four things. Knowing that our God is committed to his world. That he is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth through Jesus. That we are on the right side of history when we are one with Christ. This is God's plan. And we can have joyful confidence in no matter what kind of melee goes on around us in bearing witness to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for all your work to reveal your word to us that the mystery of the ages has been made known through the apostles and the prophets. And it's on that foundation that we now build, proclaiming Christ as Lord of all, the one who comes to unite all things in heaven and on earth. And Lord, we ask that you would give us a due humility, that you would give us trust in your authority and what you have revealed, that we would have strength in your spirit to make sacrifices. God, that we would live together in peace as a community, that these things would accompany our verbal proclamations of the gospel, and that you would work around us. Lord, help us where we're weak. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.